from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. It's good to be with you again. We've been sharing with you for some time now that Wendy and I are leading a pilgrimage to... Where are we going, Wendy? France. France. And it's a river cruise pilgrimage. We're beginning in Lourdes. If you want to do the extension, you can start in Lourdes. And then we get on a boat and go up the Seine River. We're going to be following in the footsteps of Therese, the little flower, unpacking Mm -hmm. her teaching each day on the boat. We'll have a little catechesis where I link the theology of the body with Therese's little way. I've taught this course actually several times at the St. Therese Institute in Canada, where I link these two great saints and their teachings, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with our pilgrims. And Wendy, you have been doing some reading in preparation for this uh, on the lives of Therese's parents, who are also canonized saints. They are. They were the first married couple to be canonized as a couple, meaning there could be other married people who were both canonized. I'm not actually 100% sure about that, but their cause was always pursued as together. the two of them together. Awesome. Um, and so St. Louis and St. Zélie Martin are, their, are her parents' names. And Therese was their youngest child. She was their fifth living daughter. They actually had several other children um, that they lost. So they, they had many children, and, and Therese is the youngest. So when you learn about their lives, you learn about a whole other aspect of the family's story that's not included in Therese's mm. memoirs, because she's just talking about right. her memories, right. which kind of started just, you know, she was four when her mother died. So she has very few memories of her mother, lots of her father. Um, who raised her after that uh, and her sisters. But it was really enjoyable for me. I, I got one book on their lives and loved it and got another one. So I've, I've read two books about them, and, and the two authors take different perspectives on different details of their lives, which is totally understandable. Um, but I just found them to be very real human beings on a journey of faith, not that they just kind of emerged into this world as, as saints. Yes, right. As right. That's not at all. You know, they have a story. Each of them has a story of their childhood, their parents, their growing up, their meeting one another, their understanding, their call to marriage, the different phases of their married life that had some pretty significant difficulties. Obviously, the fact that Zelie died very young was a huge difficulty. She was I forget. She was less than 50, I want to say, when mm-hmm. she died of cancer. Um, but she knew she was sick for a long time. She was a working mother. So she is very relatable when you read her stories or her quotes from her letters or things other people have said about conversations with her, that that balancing of work and raising their children and being um, an attentive wife to her husband and a support to him was a challenge they had 
also just different, really challenging things with some of the education of their daughters. Some did well in a certain school and another did not at all. And what do we do with this one? These are questions that people today can absolutely relate yeah, to. Yeah, it sounds you know? like your, your takeaway was that they were just people dealing with life, yeah. struggles and issues. And, and they had gifts given to them by God that they recognized were from Him. Mm. Um, and they wanted to use them for His glory. Like Louis, the father, had just such an appreciation for nature and for travel to see beautiful nature. But he, he linked that with uh, kind of opening his children up to wonder at God's goodness and also to pilgrimage and to growing in faith through travel. Mm. So he recognized that this is part of who he is and it's from God. And he, he lived it to the benefit of his own family and was very generous in the community. So it's it's really beautiful to just get to know them a little bit um, yeah, through reading we, about them. We often have saints up on a cloud somewhere as if they're not human or something. Yeah. yeah, I liked all the very real human things, like reading about how Zelie's promising her husband, look, I dusted your workbench, but I didn't move anything. <laughs> Everything is exactly where you want it to be. You know, that's just so normal kind of thing, right? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's good. I, I just as I'm saying that, you know, we have these saints up in the cloud. It came to me that Christianity is... Down to earth. That's exactly what the incarnation is, right? Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, comes down to earth. Uh, he ascends back to heaven, but guess what he ascends with? Hummus. His body, his humanity, his the earth, right? Uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Holiness is not an eschewing of the earth. It is not a rejection of this world. And to be a saint does not mean becoming less human or superhuman it becomes it means becoming fully human fully what it means to be human so encouraging if you guys are interested out there in making this journey with wendy and me to france and being on this river cruise and entering into the lives of therese and louis and zelly please please click the link in the show notes to learn more about this pilgrimage. We are about two-thirds of the way full on our boat. We're, we're going to have the whole boat to ourselves. So it's filling up. So please, if this is of interest to you. And it is starting oh, in October Sorry, of 2023. Yes, October what? <laughs> uh, I think 22nd is for Lords and 26th is for the start of the river. That's right. Anyway, all the details, check it out. We'd love to have you. And I'll just also let you know, as summer is fast approaching here, we have a full slate of courses. You can check out the link uh, in the show notes as well for our courses. One I want to point out to you, we have a Theology Body Level 1 in July, but the one I actually wanted to point out to you is the Spiritual Direction course. If you've been interested in learning more about spiritual direction, what spiritual direction is, if you're interested in becoming a spiritual director, or if you're interested in just receiving deep formation and spiritual direction yourself in terms, not that you'd get lots of one-on-one, -on -one, but in a classroom setting, you'll learn what spiritual direction is through the lens of the theology of the body. You're going to want to come to our course. It's the, the last few days of July and the first few days of August. 
this summer. Father Boniface Hicks, a good friend of the Institute, he'll be teaching that. I'm teaching the TOB1 in July along with Jeanette Clark, and I'm also teaching uh, the Mary course at the end of June or the third week of June. If any of those are of interest to anybody out there, check out the link. And there's also a couple online courses we're offering over the summer. You can check out those as well. Mm-hmm. It's a summer of courses. It is. A, it is. That's what our summers are. The summer gets so full with uh, all the courses we offer. God, please pray for our staff. Summer is a very, very busy time for mm-hmm. our staff. Yes. Do you like a question from a patron? Let's do it. This is from an anonymous patron. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I have pretty severe PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'm just throwing that in for you. I wouldn't have known if you hadn't yes. clarified. Okay. So thank you. And even though I've worked with a NAPRO specialist, I've had to have portions of my ovaries removed. Let's clarify for the listeners if they mm-hmm. may not know it. Is it NAPRO or NAPRO? I always thought oh. it was NAPRO, NAPRO, tomato, tomato. Uh, NAPRO or NAPRO technology, two words come together there, natural procreative technology. This would be uh, entirely in keeping with Catholic teaching. It was developed by um, what's Hilgers, Dr. Hilgers, Dr. Tom, yes, Tom Hilgers at Creighton University. It's entirely faithful to Catholic teaching. So if anyone is out there in need of diagnosis with infertility or anything regarding fertility, and you want to make sure it's in keeping with Catholic teaching, find a NAPRO technology doctor. Mm-hmm. She says, I've been unable to conceive and have been told that I would need to take a drug to induce ovulation. However, this drug would put me at risk for cancer, which already runs in my family. Would I be wrong to not pursue taking the drugs since We do have access to the treatment and that way of staying open to life. Similarly, I wonder how ethical do not resuscitate orders are. If we have a treatment to save or extend a life, are we morally bound to use it? So I feel like she's asking two different sort of um, medical ethics questions there. Yes. You want to speak to those? So let's begin with the question of a do not resuscitate order. In my understanding, a do not resuscitate order would be given by someone, let's say an elderly person who has lived his or her life and is ready to let death do what death does. We are not obligated to resuscitate a life if it has taken its natural course. Death is something that God allows. It's something he's conquered and Life has its natural course in that sense. There is no more obligation to resuscitate a life, especially if someone has requested, please do not resuscitate me. Now, I could imagine maybe um, maybe a morbid situation where a person is uh, healthy, young, and could have some morbid desire to die. And maybe we could, you know, examine that and say, does this person has have a legitimate desire to die? Is this person have an intention against life? Uh, I would say that's a possibility in some situations, but in the normal course of things, a do not resuscitate order is given by an elderly person whose life has taken its course and saying, I'm accepting that death is the next step and I'm placing my life in the hands of God and that's fine and good. We have no obligation to resuscitate. 
Am I, you're a nurse, Wendy, you've dealt with some of these issues. Have, have, have I, am I covering the bases here? Do you want to say anything more or? Yeah, I, I guess I do. I, I think um, in my, my perspective is this, that a do not resuscitate order is, is a medical term. And sometimes people who have different illnesses might know that they don't want to have that done at the end of their life. They don't want to be resuscitated and maybe they might even wear some kind of signification on their body or have a sign in their house if they were unconscious and an ambulance person, you know, were to come. That just clarifies that because no one who knows how to resuscitate a person would want to fail to do it unless it was clear that that person didn't want to be resuscitated. For example, if you have a terminal illness, even if you're not old, you may be at the point in the treatment of that illness that you understand death is coming and you would rather die without somebody desperately trying to keep you from dying. Right. And that is part of the, the good way you envision your life ending and that's important. So it's not wrong to allow, as you said, to allow death. Yeah, it's not wrong to allow death. In fact, we should be praying for a holy death, right? This is something we've kind of lost sight of in the modern world. Praying for a holy death, praying for proper preparation of our hearts mm. for death. Death is inevitable. It comes to us all. And and there is the church's teaching is very clear here. We are not the masters of life. And there are ordinary and extraordinary means of keeping someone alive, and we're not obligated to, to employ extraordinary means to keep people alive. Uh, life is a good, but that does not, I mean, it's one of the greatest goods, the greatest good God has given us, but we are not obligated to remain alive. <laughs> That's just not the course of, of events. And we can entrust our death and the hour of our death mm. to the Lord. And we, we pray that, don't we, every time we pray the Hail Mary. Pray for us now and at the hour of our yes. death. Amen. It's a good reminder. We're all going to have an hour of death. Mm. Uh, that's in the hands of the Lord. Regarding the other question about would you be obligated to take a drug to make you fertile? This is also an extraordinary treatment. Right, you. I, I can see where you're going with this because the church has such a, a high regard for fertility, right? But the church would never place a moral obligation on someone to take a certain fertility treatment to make yourself fertile. There is a peaceful acceptance of a natural infertility, right? Or a, a circumstance in which you may long to have children you're unable to have children for whatever cause, and you're accepting of that. And there are ordinary measures. I would say if you're unwilling to take even ordinary measures to overcome your infertility, that might be questionable. Uh, certainly, if you're rejoicing in your infertility because you're like, thank God, I never wanted those dirty diapers to deal with anyway. Well, now we have a, an intention against children. That's something altogether other. But you are not obligated to pursue extraordinary measures to ensure that you're fertile, especially in your situation where you said there's an added risk of cancer. Uh, and regarding this whole question of fertility drugs, the church says 
the purpose of medicine, and this is not just the church, this is sound reasoning, right? The purpose of medicine is to help the organism function the way it's meant to function. This is why there's no moral problem if someone were to choose to take a drug that made her ovulate. Maybe she's unable to ovulate. Here's a drug that allows her to ovulate. Why is that different from the pill? Because the pill works in the exact opposite direction. The purpose of the pill is to render a woman who does ovulate not able to ovulate. So it's working in the exact opposite direction, right? If someone's blind and medicine and technology can give sight, you're working in the right direction. If you're using medicine and technology to blind someone, well, now you're working in the wrong direction. You're working against the medicine and technology. But a blind person would not be obligated to have some uh, medical technique, uh, to undergo some medical technique that would give him sight. Uh, there could be 101 reasons why he couldn't do that or shouldn't do that for risk factors or financial factors or whatever. So we're not obligated to go in that direction. If we can, great. There's no moral obligation not to, but there's not an obligation to. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that, Wendy? I think that is the crux of the question is, am I obligated to have a treatment that's available Um even if I'm concerned about its risks. And and yeah, your answer is no, yeah, you're no not, not obligated. Yeah. I hope that clears up some things for many listeners. Yeah, it's it's a delicate question. And I, I hear in her question that her great respect for the church's teaching, mm-hmm. her great respect for the church's respect for human fertility, and her wanting to have that same respect and be in line with the heart of the church here, which I commend. And uh, I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes, you know, we can think the church might mean this by its teaching, but it really doesn't. And I'm I'm happy to be able to, I hope, shed some light for you on yeah. that. The next question is from Father Gerard. Hello, Father Gerard. As a redemptorist priest for 12 years, I discovered that couples who followed Humane Vitae had a very special, sensitive love for one another. They were more sensitive to their children and all people. Also, these people consistently followed all church teaching, being sensitive to taking care of nature, following Laudato Si, and welcoming refugees and the poor in a very special way. I later became a Cistercian monk, and these same people were there on our retreats in great numbers as I taught them prayer. But I've noticed a big change in recent years. The couples faithful to Humane Vitae now seem to buy into the far-right mentality that is anti-ecology, anti-refugee, neglecting the poor and outcast. I've written an article on the connection between living Humane Vitae and faithfulness to Fratelli Tutti, Pacem in Terrace, and reaching out to the poor. I find I'm meeting with resistance from persons and groups on these issues. What is happening? I presume you still preach the full message that you present in Theology of the Body Explained. How do you deal with the far right that is now so powerful in our country? Bless you, Father Gerard. Yes, I I do run into this element in the church, and I I share your concern. Uh, It is very concerning because you can fall off the ship 
on either side of the boat, right? You can lean too far to the left and you're going to fall off the boat. Lean too far to the right and you're going to fall off the boat. And there's that expression, you know, becoming more Catholic than the Pope. And I remember this was years ago when I was first starting this work. This was in the 1990s. And my my mentor, a professor of mine, who was a personal friend of John Paul II's, he pulled me aside and was kind of giving me a, a pep talk. And he, he saw that I had a certain gift and a calling to spread John Paul II's teaching. And he said, he said, look, I just want to forewarn you. If you are faithful to what John Paul II has given us, you will be violently attacked. The attack will come from within the church and it will come more from the right than from the left. And when he said that, it surprised me because, you know, dissent from Humanae Vitae comes primarily from the left. But I came to discover there's another kind of dissent from Humanae Vitae that comes from the far right. And that dissent ends up being more Catholic than the Pope. And you'll hear things like, you know, you should never practice natural family planning unless you get explicit permission from your priest or bishop. What? That's not what Humanae Vitae says. In fact, uh, John Paul II is very clear that those decisions belong only to the couple. And only if the couple themselves are making those decisions can they speak accurately of responsible parenthood. Uh, not that they shouldn't be seeking counsel from wise people, but this idea that you need explicit permission from the church to practice natural family planning, or you can you can only, um, you, you know, I hear things like, I don't practice natural family planning, I, I practice supernatural family planning. And and by that, there's there's kind of, in some people, I don't want to say everybody who says that thinks this, but there's an attitude out there that, well, if you were really Catholic, you, you wouldn't space your children at all. If you were really Catholic, you would never use natural family planning. You would just trust it all to God. And that's what they call, what some people call supernatural family planning. So what did Humanae Vitae mean by responsible parenthood? Uh, it didn't mean you have to practice what some are calling supernatural family planning, right? It means that you have a proper assessment of your family situation, the good of your spouse, your own good, the good of your existing children, the good of society, uh, and your limitations could be health issues, could be psychological issues, could be financial reasons, all of which could be legitimate reasons for abstaining from intercourse during the fertile time. So you get this far right perspective that is also not faithful to what Humanae Vitae teaches. And as soon as you start being unfaithful to one papal document, and setting up your own principle for what makes one a real Catholic rather than what the church actually teaches, as soon as you set yourself up as your own magisterium, whether that's on the right or on the left, well, then you've set yourself up as your own magisterium and you're going to give yourself permission to dissent from any, any number of teachings. The heightened concern that I have of those who fall off the boat on the right is that they do so in the name of a kind of self-righteous, I'm more holy than the rest of the world kind of pharisaical disposition. And this is the attitude that Christ was 
very, very stridently condemning in the Pharisees, right? Whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And yes, this attitude in the church has certainly come against the work that I do. And it's, it's, it's really painful to bear. Um, so Father Gerard, it sounds to me like you're running into that voice in the church. Um, I, would, I would urge you to recognize that really and truly, if you press in, they're not being faithful to Humanae Vitae. They often take it to a, a far extreme that, that borders on or crosses over into infidelity to Humanae Vitae. I'll give you one example of this. I could give you many, but one example of purported fidelity to Humanae Vitae, which actually ends up being unfaithful to Humanae Vitae, is when we have this attitude of, we're just going to let the children come as they come, which could be a holy thing, could be, but sometimes is a mask for real unholiness. And I'll give you an example. I know of a couple, I know of multiple couples who've been in this situation where they've, they've had several children very close together and the wife is begging the husband for a break. I'm at the emotional and physical breaking point. Uh, please, can we space our next child? And the husband doesn't have the self-mastery to refrain from intercourse. And the next child and the next child and the next child, and there you have eight, nine, ten 11 children in a situation that looks from one perspective, oh, look at this great Catholic family who follow Humanae Vitae. But Humanae Vitae is a specific call to chastity within marriage. And the ability, or the inability to abstain from intercourse, and your wife getting pregnant again and again and again when she's in desperate need of a break. This is not a sign of fidelity to the teaching of Humanae Vitae. This is a sign of infidelity. This is a sign of a real struggle with what Humanae Vitae is holding out to us. Humanae Vitae is holding out to all of us the virtue of chastity. And chastity is the virtue that orders one's sexual desire to uphold the true good of the other. And it could be the true good of your spouse that you abstain. In fact, John Paul II says, you may have a moral duty to avoid a child. So this idea of, you know, what some call supernatural family planning, um, and I don't, again, I don't want to put everybody who uses that phrase under this umbrella, but some people who use that term, it really is a mask for lack of virtue. I say to married couples all the time, even if you have no reason to avoid a child, even if you're ready to accept 10, 11, 12 children, praise God, God, praise God for that. But still, you should be working some time of abstinence into your married life, precisely because if you can't say no to your sexual desires, your yes is emptied of its meaning, right? Freedom means you're able to say yes, you're able to say no. If you can't say no, your yes means Nothing. All of this to say, Father Gerard, I've been on a bit of a, uh, you know, a ch following different trains of thought here, but all of this is to say, you are right. There is a descent from the church that comes from the right that is very concerning. And this voice is growing in the church today. And it is a, a reaction against, you know, descent from the left. 
and it leads to polarization, right? One imbalance creates another imbalance. And the further people go on the left, you're going to expect, just this is just human nature, the further people go to the left, the further people are going to go to the right. And the further people go to the right, the further people are going to go to the left. What's the solution to all of this? A crucified God who has one hand reaching out to the left side and one hand reaching out to the right and a sword thrust through his heart right in the middle. That's the solution, right? People on the left are upholding certain truths, but they fail to balance it out with other truths. And people on the right are upholding certain truths, but they fail to balance it out with other truths. Catholicism is not on the right nor on the left. Catholicism is the religion born from the pierced heart of Jesus Christ, and that heart is right in the middle reaching out to the truth on the right and the truth on the left Mm -hmm. and showing mercy to the error on the left and the error on the right. The fullness of the truth is in the middle, in the bleeding heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Find yourself there, Father Gerard, and pray for me that you find me there with you. Yeah, that's really powerful imagery that you were concluding with there. Um, I think some of what Father Gerard was bringing up and what you talked about with polarization in the church and also how powerfully polarized our at least our American culture is right now. I think it's true in many other countries as well. Um, the limited scope, how how much we are focusing on um, just what's on the news tonight and tomorrow night, like so intensely looking at something, very temporary and missing the eternal. When you talked about Christ on the cross, well, that happened 2,000 years ago, but that's where our eyes need to look because that's what's leading us to what is ultimately our destiny to be united with him in heaven. And I just think, yeah, some of what Father Gerard is seeing is in the church is also in the culture. And I think people are very much wanting to be in the right somehow. I don't mean on the right as in conservative, but correct, you know, with an excessive look at kind of their own self-justification and not a humble like posture of gracious receiving goodness from the Lord and and a sacrificial approach to their own lives and to their communities. I, I was really touched by some of the images Father Gerard shared about his earlier ministry and some of the ways that he perceived yeah. graces from uh, the practice of natural family planning in people's lives. And I pray that that is still happening. I really do pray that. I mean, I know we are experiencing that, but I just know us and a few of our friends, like, what's happening in in the larger world? You, you're a little bit more connected with yeah, that than I yeah, am. Yeah, I think I can speak to that a little bit. Like, that error that I was trying to shine a light on mm-hmm. of, of just let the kids come as they will, but without self-mastery, right? When you don't have sexual self-mastery, well, you're not going to have mastery over many other areas of your life either, and that creates this kind of polarization where where you 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 can't 
Like you can't hold your tongue back. You can't, you say things you shouldn't have said because you lack self-mastery. You do things you shouldn't have done because you lack self-mastery. Mm. You you hold positions and that you shouldn't hold because you lack self-mastery. And you end up rationalizing any number of things. And that that takes you in a certain direction where you can't even see that the people on the other side of certain questions are are trying to uphold a truth that you simply don't see. Am I a conservative Catholic? Am I a liberal Catholic? Well, guess what? The truth conserves what is true and the truth liberates, right? So what is true on the left, I uphold. What is true on the right, I uphold. What is false on the right, I reject. What is false on the left, I reject. And by the way, liberal, conservative, right, left, these are all political categories. They don't really have a place in the church. To be Catholic is to be universal. It's to embrace all that is true from wherever it comes, and it's to reject all that is false from wherever it comes. Once you start getting political, you start thinking you have to believe all that comes on the the, the ballot of certain political parties or something. And it's just, it's not the right category for the truth. For a Catholic, put it this way, saints, true saints get attacked both by liberals and conservatives, right? True saints are getting it from both sides. And if you're getting it from both sides, that's a good sign. It's a sign that you're in the true center. That's where the truth always is found. So, Father, it sounds to me like you got you got you're getting a little exposed to some of those people on the on the the far, further right, um, people who are faithful to humane vitae in the sense of real self mastery and living it out self mastery as a virtue. Uh, though those are the ones that I, I think you'll still find. I know you will. You'll still find those beautiful fruits. Um, so yeah, they're out there. They're out there. God bless you, Father Gerard. Our next question is from a listener named Rose. Hello, Rose. Since attending your TOB seminar in Montreal in 2018, I've tried to learn as much as I can about the theology of the body. I've been on a journey of healing since my 10th birthday, which was the day I learned I was conceived unintentionally when my mother was on the pill. Mm, Wow. I'm trying not to repeat my parents' mistake, and I want to live according to God's vision of sexuality. I'm having a real struggle right now. I have feelings for this guy, but I can't think about him without involuntarily getting very aroused. I feel very bad about it. I don't want to use him. How can I learn to think about him without this effect? Bless you, Rose. Bless you, Rose. Bless you, Rose. Thank you. Thank you for this question. I'm so happy to be able to speak into it. I have just recently been putting together a new study guide for a seminar I'm giving in Denmark in June on love and responsibility. I teach a course for the Institute on love and responsibility, so I have this big extensive study guide, but I've just been whittling it down for a single day seminar. So some of these themes from love and responsibility are fresh in my mind, and they're so pertinent, Rose, to what you are asking. Number one, I am thinking immediately of something John Paul II says in the final chapter where he's talking about insights from sexology, and sexology is the clinical study of human sexuality. And he's talking in that section about 
from a medical point of view, from a scientific point of view, about the process of arousal in our bodies. And he, he really wants to put his readers at ease, right? He says, we should not expect not to have sensual reactions when we're attracted to people. And he says, even when we assert our will against them, which is sometimes required because we they're in all kinds of situations where it would not be appropriate to follow those inclinations, we have to set our will against those inclinations. But even when we set our will against those inclinations, he says, we should not expect that our sensual reactions will immediately fall in line with our will. He even uses the word, uh, a kind of stoic approach, right? Where we're trying to repress what's going on in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. He says in the chapter on chastity, which is chapter three of Love and Responsibility, he says, chastity is not a pushing into the subconscious, our affective and sensual reactions. Uh, where they await an opportunity to explode. No, this is not chastity. Chastity, rather, he says, is a project of long-term integration, where with the help of God's grace and through growth in virtue, we learn to raise to the level of the dignity of the person all of our affective and sensual reactions to the sexual values of that person. I know that was a mouthful. And I'm so impressed because you're not even reading. It sounded like a practically a quote and you just know it. It's just so cool. It's in me because this stuff changed my life. It's so liberating. This, let let me say that again because it's just awesome. Chastity is not a matter of annihilating or pushing down into the subconscious those sensual and effective reactions that we have to the sexual values of others. No, it is a matter of long-term integration where through the virtue of chastity, with the help of God's grace, we learn to raise to the level of the dignity of the person all of our affective and sensual reactions to the sexual values of that person. What does all that mean? It's a mouthful. What does it mean? It means, number one, The arousal you are experiencing is not bad. You should not think of it as bad. This means you are a functioning human being. You are attracted to someone and your body and your mind and your heart is reacting. Affective reactions mean reactions of our affections, right? Our emotional pulls, our emotional stirrings. Sensual reactions means those stirrings of the body, a physical response, a physical arousal. Right? None of that is bad. Do not consider it bad. Do not feel bad that you have those reactions. That said, we need to learn how to raise those reactions with the help of God's grace through growth and virtue. We need to learn how to raise those reactions, both the stirrings of our emotions and the stirrings of our body, to the level of the dignity of the person to put those desires at the service of the person. And when you feel those emotions, when you feel those physical stirrings, here's here's a good way to look at it. That is an invitation from the Lord to learn how to put yourself at the true service of the dignity of that person. 
So when you experience that stir in your body, when you experience that stir of emotion in your heart, hey, Lord, here's a prayer you can pray. Lord, thank you for making me this way. Thank you that my, my heart and my body are reminding me right now that I am called to be a gift to this person. Show me, Lord, how I can be a true, genuine, sincere gift to this person in a way that honors his true dignity as a person, as someone and not as something, right? When we treat the, the body as something, we will apply, as John Paul II says, the utilitarian principle. We will say, how can I make use of this thing for me, right? That would not be the way to follow your stirrings, your emotional and sensual stirrings. How can I make use of this body for me? No, that's a utilitarian approach. But if we see the body of this other person as someone, which it truly is, then we will apply the personalistic principle, John Paul II says, which means my disposition becomes, how can I put myself at the service of this person's dignity? Right? Not how can I make this person useful to me, but how can I become a gift to this person? Right? The supreme value to be always upheld is the dignity of the person. Right? In our pornographic world, the supreme value to be upheld is my own pleasure. When, when we uphold pleasure over the dignity of the person, we end up using persons. Right? There you are, you experience those stirrings, emotional stirrings, sensual stirrings, you're at, the, you're at a fork in the road. One fork will take you down the road of treating that other person as something. And that's the utilitarian road. The other fork in the road will take you down the path of honoring that person as a person, as someone with unrepeatable dignity. And yes, those very stirrings of emotion and, and sensual reactions are meant to be at the service of honoring the dignity of the person. This is really possible by grace. In the theology of the body, John Paul II says, we are called by God to have a mature evaluations of those inner movements of our hearts. Sometimes they can be confused with each other. Is this taking me down the road of lust? Is this taking me down the road of love? Okay, I'm called to have a true mastery of those stirrings and learn with God's grace to put them at the service of the dignity of the person, right? Physical stirrings, here's be another way to put it. Physical stirrings do not need a physical release. Physical stirrings can have a spiritual release. This happens through sublimation, making sublime, where the very stirrings of the body become a gift I offer to the Lord on behalf of the dignity of the person, right? You might have this even strong inclination to want to treat the other person as a thing. To say no to that and to offer those physical stirrings to the Lord in honor of the dignity of that person, now you have physical stirrings that are experiencing a spiritual release. This is how chastity happens. This is how the strong, even strong stirrings of sensuality can become a prayer. This is the journey where we all have to embark on it. It's not easy, but I'm telling you, it's worth every 
painful step. And it's not always painful steps. We gain more and more self-mastery, and we learn how to do this with relative ease and delight. That's the joy of chastity. It requires discipline, but it's, it's like the discipline of a musician who knows how to make beautiful music with ease. Not that it was easy to get there. It took years of sacrifice and discipline. But now, having gained that mastery of, of muscle movement, etc., with, with ease, they can make beautiful music. That's chastity. That's an image mm. of chastity. That's what we're called to. One of the things I love about that is that um, we learn in Theology of the Body how the, the body reveals the person. And you said early on in your answer a way of looking at and, and being grateful for. You even said to pray, thank you that my body responds this way, is to understand your body as revealing impulses of your heart that can be directed toward very good ends. And I so appreciate that end of of serving the good of the other person that that is attracting you. And it, it can really depend on how well you know that person or, or are in relationship with him, what that would look like. And you don't say, Rose, in your question, you know, how you know this man or, or encounter him, but, you know, whether it's an acquaintance or a friendship or a close friendship, different things would influence how you would be called to love that person. But, but in respect for what the relationship really is and not demanding that it becomes something else that you want it to be, but, yes, yes. but a love that respects the truth of the situation and desires God's best for him. You know, that not to be threatened or to cling to an idea that the only good outcome of this would be if we end up together, but just to have an open hand and an open heart that says, Lord, I, I desire your best for my life and for his life and can pray for both of those things. So I encourage you to see that opportunity in your physical reaction to pray for that desire for God's will. I also think I have experienced and you have experienced too a certain kind of prayer, and I share this with all of our listeners, um, that where you're asking the Lord to shine a light on, you know, is there some meaning to this particular person arousing me? Like, is there some meaning I've attached yes, yes. or some need or unmet place in my heart that is kind of lighting up in response yes. to something that seems to be out there in that other person and and allowing the Lord, if he would, to show you or to show me, you know, what is that that I'm yes. feeling in my own desires that how can you help me to understand myself so that I can be a better gift so that I can receive graces in the areas that I need to receive them? Yeah, we, we often project onto other people certain needs that we have like and we latch on like this person can fulfill it right yeah and 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 that can become a trigger for these arousals um and and here it's it's this is a very interesting expression from jp2 he says true love and egoism are close neighbors <laughs> and we we need to learn how to put our affections and our sensual stirrings at the service of love right the, those stirrings he calls the raw material of love but they can also be the raw material of egoism. 
It depends what we do with them. Mm. So they're not bad, but they have to be put at the service of love. Rose, you're already on that journey. The fact that you're asking this question shows you're already on that journey. I hope that what Wendy and I shared uh, is 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 helpful for you. I, I'd urge you, find a way to dive into love and responsibility. It's so rewarding, so enriching. In fact, there's a talk, uh, a series of talks that I gave on one of our virtual conferences on love and responsibility where I get into this, and that is available to our patrons. So if you would like to get access to that, Rose, maybe consider becoming a patron, and then you have access to that and tons of other benefits. I hope this episode was helpful to everybody. If we said something that blessed you, and you know somebody else who needs to hear what you heard today, please share this episode and help us grow our listenership around the world. And keep the questions coming. Thank you so much for submitting your questions. May you know it deep in your heart and all over that you are an unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.